do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. How do we scale agroforestry, plant millions of productive trees on farms, and make it investable? Listen to the second interview with Propagate Ventures and how far they have come in the last year and a half since our last interview. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our Patreon community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have Ethan and Jeremy of Propagate Ventures back for a check-in interview to see where they're at since February 18, when we recorded our last podcast. So welcome back, Ethan and Jeremy. How's it going? Good to uh, get a chance to catch up. I'm extremely well, and I'm looking forward to a long discussion. Last time we, we clocked in, uh, I think, one of the records of the podcast to discuss trees, farms, agroforestry, retail investments, and obviously chestnuts. But let's start with where Propagate Ventures is right now. We're talking November 2019 compared to February 2018, which is more than a year and a half ago. Yeah. In, in the world of a startup, it feels like a lifetime, which is all good and positive things. So over the course of the last roughly a year and a half, we've really focused on growing the business. Uh, and I think you've probably seen some of that growth in the industry as well uh, in terms of some maturity happening. So with Propagate, we have expanded our operations. So we're now operating in about six states in the U.S. We are working on over 6,000 acres. Now this is all the East Coast. So this is where the, the average size of the farm is a little bit smaller than what you see out on the West. Um, we, in the past year, we focused on really moving projects through to the point where we're planting trees. Uh, and what that looks like is we have uh, the numbers behind that look like about 90,000, 90,000 trees that will be planted over the course of the next three years. And that's just a little bit of the, the movement that we've been able to, to drive forward in agroforestry systems over the course of the last year and a half. Uh, and then as a business, we've also had a few other things go on, which is we've joined the Techstars Sustainability Cohort, uh, their 2019 class, which uh, just finished up about two weeks ago. And then we also are part of Elemental Accelerator's portfolio uh, as well. So it's been, a, it's been a fun and active time for the business, uh, both on 
the opportunities for us to work on the business, to see it grow, and then to work in the business where we get to actually drive agroforestry projects and put those trees in the ground, certainly having some of those chestnuts ready to be planted. Sounds very good. And I think the sector has, has been exploding, or at least the discussion on trees and planting trees and planting trees on farms and productive trees has just been a whole different level, I think, than, than when you started. Um, in terms of vision and practicality around uh, Propagate Ventures, um, is that still the same? And for the people who didn't listen to the, the previous interview, I definitely recommend it. I will link it below. Uh, but can you give a short overview of Propagate, let's say Propagate Ventures right now? And then we can dive a bit into if that's very different from Propagate in, uh, in 2018. Sure. I, I think overall the visions remain the same. We, we, we stayed very focused and our, our team is extraordinarily passionate about what we're doing. Um, I think some of the nuances of, of how we approach that um, and what that iteration of the business looks like. So today, as we've moved forward you know, since, our, since our last discussion, uh, Propagate's focused on making it easy for investors to fund low-risk agroforestry projects. Now, we have uh, analytics and project development uh, tools that make that possible. Uh, and the, the goal really is designed around helping farmers increase their profitability with agroforestry uh, as the mechanism to do so. Uh, that platform of analytics and product development tools is really meant to simplify some of the operational know-how, workflow tools, and then investments that farmers need to integrate fruit, nut, and timber trees with agriculture in row with their existing operations. So again, really designing for agroforestry. What makes it interesting and fun for us as we think about this vision uh, of where the investment opportunities sit in our in the regenerative agriculture industry is a lot of that work that we do on the analytics and project development side are meant to also serve as a sort of underwriting process uh, and for due diligence to help quantify the risk and identify where the investment potential sits uh, to make investments in agroforestry systems. Now, Propagate, at the moment, we're very focused on the United States. Uh, we're working in our own backyard. We grew up here, so we're focused here. Um, but there's certainly a mentality in thinking that where we build tools and, and create some capacity in the United States, that there's opportunities internationally to uh, provide resources and create tools that support farmers uh, in in those places and really meets their holistic context uh, on the ground, on those farms, in places that may not be the Propagate team's backyard. So am, am I hearing correctly, you're thinking about licensing or somehow making your, your technology, your software and, and your systems available for other groups that are not you basically outside the U.S.? I think at, at some point in the future, potentially, I think the the goal today is to really um, have a strong footing on, on what we do uh, here in the United States and then be able to understand the context of what's going on elsewhere in the world. Agroforestry, of course, has applications in many different climate types, uh, in many different countries, in many different places all over the world. Uh, and then the socio-cultural context that's associated with it is really important, uh, particularly as we talk about trees as assets and, 
that are long term um, and are providing uh, sustenance and, and and economic value over time that those really need to match what goes on. So it's it's certainly something we think about, um, and and it's definitely a fun exercise that we get to vision how. Uh, the company grows and how we scale agroforestry as a really strategic solution, uh, both on the profitability uh, front for farmers across the United States and across the world, as well as as it relates to climate change and how agroforestry can work um, to create profitable options for sequestering carbon, for mitigating nutrient runoff, for filtering, water, uh, etc. And I'm imagining that dreaming or visioning, I wouldn't call it dreaming, actually visioning of where a company could go is also something you you were forced to do uh, for probably happily at Techstars. Can you explain a bit what that experience was? How did it come about for people that don't know what Techstars actually is and, and basically your cohort of, of sustainable focused companies? What was that experience like? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, it, um, overall, just a great time. Uh, the the folks behind Techstars, as well as the Nature Conservancy. So the Nature Conservancy and Techstars created a partnership to build um, or, or sorry, help support and build companies in the uh, startups in the climate space that are providing solutions, uh, both around technology and, and elsewise, to solve the climate crisis. Uh, and so the, the teams behind the program, both on Techstars and the Nature Conservancy, really passionate um, and really driven and really, really intelligent. It was such a pleasure for us to get to spend the time to work with them. Um, and and that's always an evolving process, so we'll continue to work with them. Um, the, the game plan for that program and, and our involvement specifically was really looking at how we can increase the velocity of our business. Uh, being a startup and being about two years into 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 the game with our company, really looking forward to the next two or three years and beyond. And how do we increase the speed uh, and capacity at which we make decisions and at which we build our product um, to really have a velocity that solves very direct needs uh, that sit within the industry? So one of those key things that we've been focused on as a business is a sort of problem of what's keeping investors from feeling really comfortable to invest in agroforestry systems. So to, to boil that down a little bit, where is their risk? And in project finance, there's risk across a series of different angles. We've seen a lot of this in solar. I believe we may have mentioned this at some point in our, in our last discussion but that really sits around technology. Yeah, we did. We we were discussing PPAs and and Wonder, the the crowdfunding platform, uh, crowd lending platform, and uh, yeah, we definitely touched upon what we I think, and I, I'm pretty sure you're still on, on that camp. We we can learn from the renewable energy space and how far 
in a very different sector, obviously with different variables, etc. But how far they've brought the the impact investing space or the investing space along, and, and how easy it now is for um, still you need significant capital, usually more than a thousand dollars or euros. But actually, it, it the, the minimum came down a lot, and and the the potential of this sector to grow is just immense. Absolutely, and I think we're seeing that today with regenerative agriculture slowly, but but it's certainly happening. And so, you know, as to, to relate it to, to Techstars, I'm glad you brought up Wonder. Um, Brian Bursick, who's the founder and CEO over at Wonder, is, was one of our mentors that we spent a chunk of time wow. with during yeah. Techstars. So Techstars is a very mentor-driven uh, accelerator program. So we sat down with, we had five lead mentors who are high high capacity, very strategic and intelligent people. And the fact that they give us the time of day to sit down with us and, and really plug into the issues uh, and challenges of our business was outstanding. Um, Brian being one of those folks to really get an understanding of what were some of the challenges he faced in the early days of, of their business with Wonder and what are some of the parallels he sees with our business and his business and, and how we might think about collaborating and being strategic around solving some of those issues so that we can drive the process forward, similar to, as you were saying, about um, moving regenerative agriculture forward quickly to meet the scope of the problem, uh, similar to what took the solar industry 10 to 15 years to handle. And a lot of those components were around the risk in technology, risk in operations and maintenance of these of these systems, risk in the offtake, so back to those those purchase agreements, um, and then risk in the supply. Which sounds extremely similar to trees, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so so for that component, that's really what we've spent our time uh, as a business really thinking about how can we solve those challenges to make it really easy for investors to unlock these massive markets, which is exactly what Wonder did for the solar industry. And there's other companies that have done similar work. Uh, AngelList is one of them that did something similar uh, for the startup in space. So we're really thinking about how we can build a product and solution that that drives that process forward. Uh, and I know, I know Jeremy spent uh, – majority of his time uh, among many, many other things, but to really think about what the roadmap looks like for that product and the vision for, for making the investments in agroforestry a clean and clear process. Jeremy, you want to lead us a bit through the, the roadmap and, and also what you learned or saw in Techstars and, and working working with these amazing mentors of, of that roadmap of, okay, how do we uh, first of all, speed it up because 50, we don't have 15 years and, and we need a lot of those trees in the ground as soon as possible. But it's much easier said than done, obviously, from uh, behind a, a computer with a with a microphone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, it's a really tough problem to solve because you have to solve a lot of them all at the same time. And so there, the challenge is looking at it from at almost as, as a scalable technology problem as much as a kind of project by project problem. You kind of you know, can take the approach from the ground up as well as from the top down and kind of see where they meet. And you know, luckily on our end, we have an amazing group of customers as well as an amazing group of potential customers that we 
been working with for a long time. And when you say customers, do you mean farmers or investors? Uh, we mean farmers as well as investors who have invested okay. in farms through us. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's a combination of both. And those two groups have very different information requirements as well as very different knowledge gaps that need to be built um, to help them kind of bridge their understanding and comfort at different states of the project's uh, development. And so really what, what we've built is a way of both tracking progress of the project um, as well as um, building kind of a 20-year-long outlook for what to expect through the lifetime of that project from the perspective of both the manager, um, the operations manager, as well as the perspective of the investor. Um, and those meet uh, in, in our platform to enable them to actually take action. So um, everything down to kind of the task level um, of what the farm needs to do throughout a season to meet the benchmarks for, for actual expectations from an investment perspective, um, as well as from an investor's perspective to track kind of where those benchmarks are being hit or where we might be able to predict things being missed and how we can make viable adjustments throughout the seasons um, to be able to actually succeed against what we're projecting. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, I guess I can, I can leave it there in terms of kind of the high level of what the problem we're trying to solve is from both of those customers' perspectives. But in terms of Techstars, really what they've helped us do is kind of view our business in two life cycles, which is we have kind of the, the fast growing, being able to scale across a lot of project life cycle where we are able to iterate much faster on the technology side of things. Um, while on the kind of the, the project level um, kind of, growth cycle. It's a little bit more slow and we have to be very diligent uh, around decisions um, that are being made. Um, this, is, this is agriculture, right? So things move um, fairly um, uh, slowly and you have to take, take it year by year to kind of make the adjustments. And so for us, being able to kind of build the, internally the, the tools that we've needed to be able to kind of switch between that faster cycle as well as the uh, slower cycle of looking at agricultural, agricultural cyclical nature um, is something that we've institutionalized throughout that program and that tech has really helped us with. I, I would love to go a bit more into detail on, on the following of the project. I mean, I can understand if we're talking about a solar project, I, I, there are services that can, can adjust uh, or can have a, a look at how my uh, my solar park on the roof, etc., is doing, or there's maintenance involved, etc. In terms of agroforestry trees on, let's say, my land as a farmer, um, how do you track the progress? How do you to make sure the trees are are doing fine? And um, how do you make sure you you can feed back this information to investors? How does that process at the moment work? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll kind of look, maybe to help answer the question, let me walk through how we go about all this. Like what's the process that that takes place that enables agroforestry to be a low risk project finance opportunity. And so the the way we go about it, it's sort of the it's kind of like the business stuff, if you will, <laughs> of the product. Um, so essentially it, it starts with de-risking the projects. So we make it really easy to access project development tools and economic insights that farmers need to confidently manage an agroforestry project. On our side of things, we analyze everything. So we look at costs and revenues, 
we look at yield projections as well as labor assumptions uh, and and other components like market conditions. Um, and what this, this allows us to do is it takes a, it's a software approach to to project diligence, which allows Propagate to assess these projects faster and more accurately than some of the other um, opportunities or, or folks in the business today. And this is really around driving the process forward really efficiently so that uh, investors feel comfortable and more importantly, the farmers who are essentially the managers of these investments feel very confident that what they're doing in terms of their day-to-day operation is going to be successful. And so as we analyze these projects, we take the best of them, we then group them into funds, and we diversify across crop types and geographies. And how do these projects um, and slash farmers come to you? Is that you going out to find them or is it farmers signing up and reaching out like, hey, I would love to integrate trees into, into my operation. Uh, can you help me? Yeah. Right now, a lot of the farms that have come uh, into kind of our uh, universe have been mostly cold inbound. About 50% of the farms that we work with have found us through Facebook, through um, just searching online, believe it or not. Um, and the other half a lot of that comes from conferences and strategic partners um, that make introductions. Um, and in terms of process, you know, these are most of the folks that come to us um, are interested in silvopasture. They're interested in integrating trees into their operations, but they really don't know where to start. Um, and they're looking for a strategic partner to help them kind of guide that process forward because it's a long-term process. And they're looking for someone who can help de- them de-risk it, um, help them bridge their um their knowledge gaps and how to manage these systems, they really, um, it, it, it's because it's both a high need for them to have someone like us involved. Um, but also we, the, the value that we provide is exactly what they're looking for. So it's, it's a really good fit at this stage, um, for most of the farms that are interested in agroforestry. And then Ethan, you were mentioning you basically bundle them together and that's a step as well in de-risking as you have different crops, different land types, different farms meaning that hopefully a higher amount of trees obviously survives and creates the yield you, you need. How many should I imagine? What's the current size of a fund? Because a fund could be 5 million or 500. What is your, your sweet spot at the moment? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So we're, we're, we're in the midst of bundling uh, a lot of these projects together. I think as, as Jeremy mentioned, as we get more of these project opportunities, these farmers that we're working with through the process, through that analysis phase, we really have a better understanding of what is needed to make these projects successful. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is a project size that I have to imagine? Is it 50,000 or 500,000 or 5 million? I mean, it depends obviously, but what's the, the ones you're working with now, more or less, when you say a project? Right now, it ranges between about 200,000 to a million is the size of the projects. And those are just based on crop selection as well as size of farm. Fruit is more capital intensive comparatively to timber. Um, so it's a, it's a distribution across that dollar amount depending on the, the crops that are selected for the farm as well as the size of the farm. And to follow up on that, one of the areas we're going as we move forward as we think about new different crop types, so like a shrub fruit or a tree fruit, a tree nut, and then 
timber that to have um, a diversity of those various crop types also gives us some flexibility in terms of what sits in to one of those funds. It makes it reduces the risk around the expectations of, of what we'll get from an economic perspective when we have something like a shrub fruit, like a blueberry, for example, which performs very differently. So it has different capex requirements, it has different opex requirements, and also has a different return profile than something like timber or something like a chestnut. So as we start to blend those together, it really creates a very nice balance of a portfolio that provides what we believe is a really attractive opportunity from an investment perspective into agriculture and really looking at the productive assets on farmland that are driving the value across the farm. And, and when you say blend, does that mean blend on a portfolio level or also on a farm level? That's It's both farm level and portfolio level. So different farms, there's opportunities to do multiple crop types, if the size is right and the farmer has the right operations and management team in place to actually manage it. So sometimes it does go down to the farm level where you're diversifying on the same piece of ground as well. Which could be very interesting from a risk perspective, cash flow on a farm, farm level, obviously, and a soil perspective. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A good example of this is a black currant or elderberry and chestnut um, polyculture planting, um, where it, the black currant is machine harvested and the, and the chestnut is also machine harvested. One's harvested early in um, June, July, um, one's harvested in October. Um, so you're going to have that staging of cash flows as well through the year for that single project. And I can imagine they're, let's say, productive, not at the same moment. Like it, it takes X years for the chestnut and X years for the black currant. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The easy principle to think about here is that as you move towards shrub fruit, you the amount of uh, time it takes to yield is, is shorter. The potential return is also higher, but it has a lot more operations and management risk just because it's more intensive, more horticulturally intensive. Um, tree fruit, similarly, tree nuts are kind of in the middle there. And then as you move toward timber, it's a lot lower operations and management risk, but relative returns are also uh, lower and it's more of a lump sum type cash flow comparatively to an annual-based in, uh, operating income cash flow. And do you see opportunities there as, as there's a lot of discussion, at least I see it a bit from the outside of the agroforestry space in, in terms of complex systems and not having... Uh, just timber or, uh, I mean, you're saying in terms of management, obviously, there's a whole different level needed if you're uh, doing uh, fruit trees, for example, as you mentioned. Do you see developments there, interest from investors, interest from farmers to make these systems more complex and thus, let's say, more interesting in terms of a, a soil, from a soil perspective or in terms from a carbon perspective? Yeah. So, you know, everything we do is really from the project level up from the analysis perspective. So when we're running through an analysis, we're looking at the context of the people on the ground and their capacities to manage complexity. Um, and there's always a desire to increase complexity from a biological diversity perspective, but from a economics perspective, there's kind of a tension there. So what we look to do is integrate as much diversity, especially in the areas that are going to generally be underproductive. These are like very wet areas on the farm 
or areas that, that would be better served as being a buffer zone. So about 10%, maybe sometimes between 5 and 15% of the planting typically goes into what we call biodiversity species, which are things that might have marketable yields but are fairly niche at this stage. But from an ecological perspective, provide native pollinator habitat as well as uh, predatory insects to uh, provide the kind of ecological pest management infrastructure on a farm that would otherwise not be there. Um, so we're planning in those biodiversity kind of complexity pieces to it, but is weighted depending on the capacity of the farm to be able to manage that much complexity. Managing biomass in general is very labor intensive and takes a lot of diligence. And so we just want to make sure everyone's prepared to do that when we plan it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of pick up on that as, as, as the decision gets made to move forward and, and to integrate more biodiverse complexity, if you will, into these farm operations where Propagate sits and where we're really trying to continue to make this process really clean and easy for both farmers and investors. So as we go back to projects have gone through, have been put into a fund. And then the next component is once an investor participates, then we're really focused on brokering the trees that are needed for our farmers so that that farm can meet the investment expectations. And the operations and maintenance component that, that Jeremy's pointing to. So we, we have essentially a group of vetted farm partners. These are some of the folks that work hard on a day-to-day basis and fully understand regenerative systems as well as understand the depths of what it means to be farming and are very knowledgeable and smart people around how to manage their operation. So we're working with this group of folks to ensure that maintenance is really top of class. And where we go from there in terms of Propagate's involvement is to start to build contracts with commercial buyers for the harvested produce and timber so that we can generate profit shares for our farmers so they have access to the economic upside of what they're managing on a day-to-day. And a lot of this is to take some of the risk off the table of answering the question of from a farmer's perspective, I'm interested in diversifying my system. I'm happy to plant tree fruit. Who's going to buy those crops? So starting to bring in those components earlier, which was some of the pre-purchase agreements and some of those components to continue to drive that process forward. And as we look at the harvested produce and timber that are coming out of a diversified portfolio of projects, it gives us a little bit more wiggle room and capacity to have strong relationships on the commercial side. And if you think about a biodiversity species like a shrub willow, um, which is really good in riparian zone areas or wet areas, um, from a marketing perspective, it's a fairly difficult to market um, niche crop that you would sell into flower shops. Um, But if there was, say, a florist that was working for a large company, that wanted to procure really high quality willow stems for their ornamental arrangements. That's something that we would love to be able to broker. Um, I think the tough part is at this stage, those types of crops are still very niche. So we want to make sure that when we're planting those in, we're planting them in with the kind of the idea that they might not make money. So they're a very small percentage of allocation, but still providing the ecological benefits on the farm uh, side of things. And 
what would have to change if you look from an agroforestry perspective and a scale up, what would have to change to, to really make this scalable? Is it more attention for these niche products that have a huge biodiversity component? Is it us eating a lot more chestnuts? What would be, I mean, you can probably answer it, um, both of you in a different way. What would be, according to you, the biggest potential breakthrough over the next years that would really scale agroforestry? I think it's definitely everybody eating more chestnuts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, there are a lot of barriers to, to entry um, in terms of the scale up. So there's there's a lot of work happening on the research and development front to make sure that the genetic development of some of these tree crops is moving forward in a way that allows farmers to better utilize those crops in an economically viable way compared to certain grains or cereals that are used today. I think in terms of the scale-up thing, there's we're sitting in a bit of an interesting phase where the R&D work is fairly strong and has happened over the course of, of time. And so there's not much concern there. There's always work to be done. But the next piece is really driving capital into more projects. So this is moving beyond the sort of pilot phase. I think there's a series of agroforestry projects across the world that can offer insight into how these projects operate, what they look like, what the management and the operation is that we can really build off of that and use that information and context to our advantage to continue to steward capital into more projects and create opportunities for young farmers to be active in this space. And I think we're starting to see some of that. Certainly some of the foundations and family offices are getting involved. And I think we're now moving more into the realm where the average investor is, is, is turning their head and, and, and thinking, hmm, maybe there is a really interesting opportunity in agriculture that they may have ignored five years ago. So I think that's where we are and where some of the pressures are uh, in terms of what's happening from a climate perspective. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. And Jeremy, I'm sure you have another uh, approach to, to answering that question. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm happy to kind of add some color to that. Um, well, I mean, I think the key thing here is if you take the long view, if you take the 50-year view and just look back in history, permanent crop production, so fruit and nut crops, as well as timber crops have historically outperformed um, other assets, asset classes. Um, and so the, the case for the, um, the types of crops that are, that enable agroforestry to happen is actually really well spelled out. But doesn't it panic people that, I mean, there was in a time with not extremely rapid climate change or climate disruption, climate panic, and trees don't move in the sense that they kind of walk away. And especially as investors, if I say, I'm going to take a 50 year view and having part of my assets being ground bound, is, is it something that scares investors to put money to work uh, on, on agroforestry systems? I would say probably. I think natural capital solutions in general are things that in the time of climate change, there is this, con this, this climate risk factor. Um, but if you look at that and risk factor and you actually say, ask yourself the questions, ask yourself the question, if I had an option on these solutions, 
um, for having some sort of benefit come back to me. So if, if, if you take 50-year outlook and you say, I have a carbon option on these trees um, and they might return 10% to me over that 20 years just in terms of nut production or timber production, having that option is also very attractive. That's helping mitigate that climate risk piece. And so I think the world is going down a direction where having the option to to actually capitalize on that risk factor is something that is going to be increasingly um, attractive to investors, even if it means you say increase uh, some loss to a degree in the in, in the climate in the the tree itself. Um, a good example of this um, might be something along the lines of. Um, if you, if you look across the entire sector of agriculture in terms of risk factors of the given species, trees as a, as a species in landscapes are relatively low risk from a production perspective comparatively to other crop types. Um, see, if you have three years of pretty bad drought in the northeast um, and you lose your um, you lose a good corn yield, you're going to be operating at a loss for all three of those years. But in that same kind of climate zone, you still might be able to get a good yield out of a permanent crop um, because they're more drought tolerant. Um, I'm not talking about the Central Valley of California here. Um, that's a different scenario. Um, yeah, sure. But from an ecological perspective, trees have some more resilience factors than most and than many other crop types do within agriculture. And so I think you have to both compare it to the existing asset classes that are natural climate solutions, asset classes that we have today in and around agriculture, as well as look at the options that might be on the table down the line. No, I think it's a great answer. And I want to be conscious of, of both of your time and end with a final question to both of you, which I think is a question I, I started asking after I interviewed you, so not so long ago, but I, is a question I like to ask to see unrelated in this case to propagate. If you could use a magic wand and change something overnight and tomorrow morning we wake up and, and Jeremy or Ethan has changed something in the agriculture and let's say also the forestry space, what would that be? That is a phenomenal question. <laughs> wow. Uh, I have to put, I have to kind of put my thinking cap on for that one. My sort of initial reaction and how I want to respond to that question is, what I'd like to see is fairly simple, is that the average person just has a much clearer, much more clear connection to where their food comes from. You know, if I think about my family and, and my, my close friends, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in a lucky space where they, they've heard me talk about this so much that <laughs> they've changed their purchasing habits, which makes dinner conversation certainly more interesting, but the food also tastes better. And I bet, yeah. It's the, these little changes of, am I buying a pound of beef at the grocery store because it's the cheapest option available? Or am I buying a pound of beef that comes from a ranch that's has is running holistic plant grazing? The latter option both taste better. Sure, maybe it's a little bit more expensive today, but I think that will change as supply goes up. So my answer to your question is a sort of demand thing. It's like the one thing I would like to see to support farmers and to support ecological solutions in the regenerative agriculture and then move that into the commodities space is a, a slight change in purchasing habits, a little bit more care and passion for 
the type of food we're buying and where it comes from and really getting an understanding of who, uh, who are the people behind the farms that are making that food available to us, which it's, it's a little bit of a mental cultural shift, I think. Great answer. And you, Jeremy? I mean, I'm, I'm going to go down and kind of maybe a little bit of a different route, um, which is, I think um, that right now we kind of have a market where we're not pricing in risk appropriately um, from a macro perspective. Um, and then if you look at kind of the way in which agricultural landscapes are financed, you look at the way in which they're valued, um, the, there's a generally a disconnect between the agricultural value of what can be produced on a piece of land, how it's been treated for 40 years, and um, the, the actual price of that landscape itself. So I, I think we're, I think we're going to actually see this renaissance happen, uh, where the, the the risk factors that um, are that come as a part of um, certain practices in agriculture. Um, or certain practices within a watershed that increase the risk of that watershed are accurately reflected in the pricing, as well as the productivity of that landscape historically um, actually starts to get factored into that pricing. Um, so that way, um, we start to get a little bit more of an accurate um, price discovery within agriculture, um, where we can actually see where the value is in a more transparent fashion. I think right now, um, it's a little bit more difficult given the history of the last 40 to 50 years that has moved agriculture, um, agricultural land values in a direction that are disconnected from the underlying fundamentals. And I think getting back to that is going to be a big change for um, moving agriculture in a direction that will help regenerate landscapes. It's going to be a, an enormous change to, let's say, to get some air out of that bubble and connect it back to actually what a, a landscape or a farm can produce. And then the whole discussion obviously becomes how to regenerate it or how to improve that asset, improve the soil, improve the, the landscape so it can actually produce more, which is now completely disconnected from the, the land price. Very interesting. I want to thank you both so much for your time and thank you for the check-in. And um, we'll be checking in hopefully earlier than uh, another year and a half. Thank you for also taking the time and for asking great questions. It's always, we always enjoy spending the time to dig into these details with you. So thank you for hosting the podcast and for inviting us again to be part of it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, it's really appreciated. I think we, we could probably go on for another hour here, but uh, it's probably good to stop us in our tracks. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.